Well, good morning. We'll try that again. Good morning. Good morning. It's lovely to see you here. I hope that you are, hope that you're getting warmer. Maybe you're thawing out a little bit. Uh, you should have received a, uh, a little handout when you came in in the back. And uh, just in a minute, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Uh, if you're visiting maybe for the first time, my name is Nick. I have the joy of serving here as one of the shepherds. We're, we're doing this equipping class normally on a Sunday morning during this hour. We have a couple different equipping classes going on. Um, but we're taking, uh, uh, we're giving the teachers uh, who labor every Sunday for a long time, we're giving them a break for a few weeks. And uh, we're gathering here in this class to look at something that we're calling eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, we'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But this morning we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 4, a very familiar passage. Um, but before we do that, I thought it would be helpful just to uh, mention something. This week in my uh, quiet time, I was in the Psalms and I read uh, one of my favorite Psalms. And something struck me as it relates to what we're looking at this morning. Um, I'll, I'll put it on the screen. This is, uh, this is from Psalm 72. Uh, psalm 72 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of Solomon. So King Solomon is praying about the future king who's going to come, the, the son of David, the one who's going to be a forever king on a forever throne. Solomon's looking forward to this glorious king who is to come. And he's praying for God to bring him. And let's listen to, let's look first at his requests and he says, notice just how expansive this is. Solomon prays, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty big kingdom, isn't it? May the desert tribes bow down before him and may his enemies, what? Lick the dust. That sounds like Genesis 3, right? May they lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, so think Spain, as far away as Spain, as far as you can get from Israel. May, may the kings of Tarshish and even the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. So just say, so think about this. This is certainly the king of kings, right? If, if all of these kings are bringing this king gifts, this is the king of kings that Solomon is praying about. What a great king. And, and Solomon says, if I've missed any of those kings, may all kings fall down before him. And then look at this. May all nations serve him. That's amazing, right? May all the nations of the earth bow down and serve this glorious king. Now, here's the deal. At this point, as you're reading Psalm 72, you should be asking, what makes this king deserving and worthy of all of this? What is it about this king 
that makes him so glorious and so gracious and so wonderful that the whole world should bow before him? Is it his money? Is it his power? Is it, what is it? Well, Solomon tells us in the next verse, and it's amazing. See a little word for? When you, when you see a little, little word for, he's giving you the reason or the ground for everything he just prayed. What makes this king so glorious? He delivers the needy when he calls. He delivers the poor. And he delivers the one who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And he saves the life of the needy from oppression and violence. This king, he redeems their life. And this is and precious is their blood in his sight. Isn't that glorious? Our king, the one who deserves worship and adoration and service of all nations, the one who's high and exalted, how does he use his authority? He rescues the needy and the poor and the oppressed. That's our king. This is basically what I want you to see from the passage we're about to study in Luke, in Luke 21. Okay? But before we do that, let's pray and ask our king to help us to see his glory. Okay? Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we do praise you this day for giving us everything by giving us your dearly beloved son to be our savior. Lord, we do praise him. We praise him for being the king of kings and Lord of lords, the friend of sinners, the one who uses his authority to stoop down low where we are, who became a servant and gave his life as a ransom for many. Oh, Father, help us even now to behold a sight of his glory and his grace. Help us to see, even in a familiar passage, maybe a passage we haven't studied carefully before, help us to see a sight of his justice and his care and his righteousness, especially for the poor and the needy. So to that end, we ask you, Father, to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in his beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son who lives with you, who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. So we've been studying just a selection of passages from the Gospels these past few weeks, and we've been looking and trying to see and to savor the glory and grace of Jesus. That's what Jesus prayed for the night he was betrayed in John 17. And so we want to look for the glory of Jesus and look for the grace of Jesus so that by beholding his glory by faith in the gospel, 2 Corinthians 3.18 might happen, namely that we might be transformed more and more into his image. So we, we behold in order to become 
more and more like our Savior. That's what we're doing in this class. This morning, I have one solitary aim from Luke 21. This is Luke 21, 1 to 4. The passage about the widow's might. If you remember the King. Anybody grew up reading the King James? Maybe you still do. The widow's might. If if I end up saying widow's might, just I'll say it right now. Uh, The might is just a reference to the small coin that coins that she was given. So I'm not talking about that she's strong. I'm saying it's might. M I T E. Anyway, get that get that out of the way for those non King James readers. Okay. Um, We want to see and savor the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, the God of Israel in the flesh, the one who is the defender of widows, the defender of widows. What we're going to do is we're going to use these uh, rules of interpretation. Uh, I've told y'all before, I teach these to my kids and uh, they're helpful. Um, Words have meaning. So we're going to give prayerful and careful attention to the words. We have to look at the words. You have to start with the words because that's where the meaning is. And we're going to understand what the words mean by giving attention to the context. Um, say, say after me, context is king. If you take a text out of a context, all you're left with is a con. You see that? Amen. I did not make that up. But it's good, isn't it? And, and I would say this morning, more than anything, of the four Roark rules, we're going to spend the most time. I want, you, I want to persuade you how important it is to see context because it will, it will help illuminate a familiar passage this morning. Uh, we want to look at other scripture. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The Bible is full of itself. Um, scripture, the Holy Spirit comments on scripture. So we want to look at all of scripture. And as we do so, we want to do uh, number four. We want to look for the glory and grace of Jesus. Okay, so this morning we're looking at um, Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. You'll have that in your notes. Um, you might be thinking uh, it's end of year uh, and uh, a passage that is notorious about sacrificial gift. Maybe Roark is going to be teaching us. In fact, offer, offering that we're going to take the offering. Come on up. We're not taking the offering, no. The, uh, the, the, the reason you might suspect that this passage that I'm going to spend the whole time talking about sacrificial giving is because this passage is probably, one commentator said, the most famous donation in history. Um, this is one of the most endearing and memorable stories in the New Testament. And we're told in this passage about a remarkable gift that a poor widow makes in the temple. She gives two small coins, two mites, two lepta. She gives everything she has to live on. And it's for this reason that nearly universally, Bible interpreters have understood this passage to teach a moving lesson about giving sacrificially to the Lord's work. And so... I want us to look at this carefully and prayerfully and draw out what we can understand about the glory and grace of Jesus. So let's read it together. Verse one, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting in their gifts into the offering box. 
And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. That is uh, all of the rich. And then he tells us the reason why. For they all contributed, notice, out of their abundance, out of their fullness. But she, out of her poverty. And notice this phrase. She put in all that she had to live on. So she, in other words, she gave her last two cents. She gave everything she had to live on. So let's remind ourselves briefly. Let's set the context. Let's remind ourselves what's going on in Luke's gospel. Where is Jesus? All of that, okay? So and I, I'm so proud of myself. I don't normally do this, but I actually gave you pictures this morning. Wow, look at this. This took me like 30 minutes to do this. I hand draw this yesterday. <laughs> took me all day. I'm lying. I didn't do that. I shouldn't bear false witness. I, I did not draw this. Okay, this is Passion Week. It's the last week of our Lord's life before the resurrection. So remember, on Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem. On Monday, he entered the temple and he cleansed the temple. Remember, he cleansed the temple and pronounced judgment on it as a cursed, fruitless fig tree. Now it's Tuesday. Jesus has spent all day in the temple courts teaching and proclaiming the gospel of God. And Jesus has endured the onslaught of all the religious leadership of Israel. A lot of them couldn't agree on stuff. They could agree on one thing. Whether it was the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, or the scribes, they all hated Jesus and they wanted him out of the picture. So Jesus has been all day long on Tuesday teaching, preaching, and this is where he is. He's been enduring this constant barrage. We're told over in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, that Jesus took his seat. He sat down in the treasury right? Opposite of the treasury, right before he sees this widow giving her gift. Now, where was the treasury? I put it, put this picture up. This is the temple. You can see it here. You've got the, the temple itself. It's on the northwestern part of the temple mount. And this over here, this is Solomon's portico, right? And then this, I'm going to zoom in a little bit. This is obviously the, the temple complex. But before you, you see this part out here, that's the court of the Gentiles, so they had constructed a, a situation where even though God's temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, they put up this dividing wall. that says Gentiles can't go past here. See that little wall there. So then inside here, this is the, the larger temple complex inside. So let's zoom in a little bit. Look at this. Great graphic. Let's get a little golf clap for the graphic. I mean, it's pretty good. OK, so look at it. So so in here, you see this little area in here. That is the court of women. So in that court, that's so only men could go and priests, priests could go back here. This is men, Israelites go in here. But in this court right here, this is where Jewish men, women and children could go in there if they were clean. And this is where Jesus was doing most of his public ministry on Tuesday. He's teaching in this area. This is also where they had set up the treasury. 
Now, during Passover week, you'd have about 6,000 people in this space. 6,000 crammed in there, and Jesus is preaching. And in the treasury, where Jesus sat down across from the treasury, listen, the, the leadership had done this. They set up 13 offering boxes. Y'all, y'all know what a shofar is? You see one of those like big ram's horns? They had these big shofars, 13 of them lined up. And you would walk up publicly in front of everybody to give your money. So they didn't do an offering plate. <laughs> you walked forward and you, there was no cash. They, was, they had coins. So you would throw your coins into whatever shofar you were donating to. And you remember in Matthew 6, the Pharisees had this showy way of doing it. They'd blow trumpets and look at me as I'm throwing my money in. That's what's going on, okay? And so Jesus, after an exhausting day of ministry, he sits down in this area. And Luke tells us, verse 1, that he looks up. He looks up, and what does he see? He sees some rich people putting in money in the offering. They put in a portion of their wealth, but he also sees a poor widow who approaches the offering box, puts in two pennies, basically, all that she has to live on. Now, children, some children here, a widow is a woman whose husband has died. A widower is a man man whose wife has died. So this is a poor widow. And she put in the smallest coins in circulation. So just think of two pennies, right? And verse three, Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the rich because she gave out of her poverty all that she had to live on, okay? So I I just wanna underscore this. Most Bible interpreters over the centuries have found the gift of the widow's might to teach us a lesson, listen, about true devotion to God that expresses itself in sacrificial giving. That is the majority interpretation of this passage. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you've heard a sermon about that, taking that view. Don't be ashamed. Okay, please leave. No, I'm just kidding. But here's the deal, though. If you study this passage and see what other people say about it in, in the commentaries and over, the, over the, the centuries, what's striking is this. Even though that's the majority interpretation, there is wide spectrum of telling us exactly what the lesson is. What, what is the lesson? If the lesson is sacrificial giving, well, that should be pretty straightforward. So I'm, I'm going to sum up on, in the notes here. I, I, left, I left you a bunch of spaces. You, on the back of your little handout, you can actually scan a little code there and get all of these notes if you want it. So just put the pencils down if you don't want to write all this down. I'm just going to really quickly go through. Here are the main options that you're going to get in this interpretation. First, the lesson we're supposed to take is that our giving is not measured by the amount we give, but by our sacrifice. In other words, give till it hurts. That's the first interpretation. Second one, it's that our giving is not measured by the amount we give, but by the proportion that we give. In other words, it's the quality of your offering 
the quality of our faith is really about the percentage that you give of your total assets. And because the widow gave 100%, uh, she gave everything she had to live on. So that's, that's, that's what it's teaching us. Next interpretation is that our giving is not measured by the amount we give, but by the amount that we keep back. In other words, the rich gave out of their fullness, but they kept back the rest of their money, right? But the, the, the widow didn't do that. She gave all that she had to live on. She spared nothing. Next lesson is that God is not concerned with the amount we give, but rather how we give. So the poor widow gave her gift not to be seen by men, not like the Pharisees and the scribes. She, did, she gave humbly um, so that only the Son of God saw her. Uh, two more. Uh, uh, a more recent interpretation is that the lesson is, not, is that God can use a small gift for great purposes. And then the last one is, this is more common in the Middle Ages. The lesson that God ex- is that God expects you to give away all of your possessions and take a vow of poverty. Now, uh, all of these interpretations, uh, I would say many of them are taught in other parts of Scripture, right? We are to give sacrificially. We are to give for the glory of God. All of that's true. But... That's a wide spectrum of interpretations, right? Now, um, I just want to just highlight one thing, okay? Just, just notice something. Because sometimes when we read a passage, we've read it so many times, we don't read it anymore. So I want you to look again at this passage and look again at what Jesus says, but also notice what Jesus doesn't say. Okay, let's look at it again, all right? He says in verse three, truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus says four things. Number one, he says that this woman is a widow. Second, she's poor. So one, two. Y'all with me so far? This, you you don't have to go to seminary to see this, right? I'm just reading, all right? Y'all are like, man, I came to this class for what reason again? She's a widow and she's poor. Number three, we're told she put in more than all of the rich. You see that? And then the reason why she put in more than all the rich is because, number four, while they gave out of their abundance, she gave out of her poverty everything that she had. Now notice that that's that's what Jesus says. Relatively speaking, compared to the rich, she gave more than all of them because she gave everything she had. Now, notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus makes absolutely no mention of the widow's faith. He doesn't say anything about the motives of her heart. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't tell us if this poor widow is a believer or not. We aren't told if this widow was in the kingdom or near the kingdom or outside the kingdom. It's striking, isn't it? At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we meet another widow named who? Anna. Remember Anna? Anna and Simeon in the very beginning of Luke's gospel. And remember, Luke doesn't just say that she was a widow at 84 years old. He tells us Anna, remember Anna. So if you don't, y'all may not have read this. Anna 
Go to chapter two, verse 36 and following. We're told she worshiped in the temple. She prayed and fasted night and day. She never left. We're told that she, she gave thanks to God and that she spoke about Jesus to everyone in the temple courts, all who were longing for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Luke told her the motivations of what Anna was doing, of what that would have. But here, we're not told anything about the widow. We're not told Jesus doesn't praise the rich or condemn the rich. Jesus doesn't praise her or condemn her. And notice, Jesus doesn't give any application to his disciples. Jesus does not say, hey guys, you see that poor widow over there? She gave everything. Y'all walk over there with the, uh, you know, the, the money bag and put it all in the offering box. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus simply makes, listen, an observation, not an application. He says, he looks up, he sees her giving her two coins and says, that poor widow gave more than all of those rich people. That's it. Now, if there's any application that's straightforward that Jesus wouldn't have to have mentioned, it would be the give everything you have and take a vow of poverty interpretation. Now, I don't think that's a biblical, if you look at other scriptures, I don't think Jesus is teaching that, right? Now, raise your hand if, if I've completely confused you. Anybody confused? All right. Hopefully, I've, I, want, I, I want to confuse you. I want, at, least, at least, I want you to feel a little bit lost, okay? I want you to feel a little bit lost. Now, yeah. Okay, we're waiting. That's right. Now, have you ever felt lost? Let me tell you a story. Um, when I was little, I was living in the Washington, D.C. area. I have an older brother. My sister had not been born yet. I was with my mom and dad, and we were out uh, at a toy store in a mall. And it was really crowded. It was actually around the holidays. And so I'm in the mall. I'm with my parents. They're really good parents, by the way. And uh, I somehow get away from my mom and dad. And I get lost in the crowd and I wander outside the toy store into the mall and I am, you know, MIA, right? Well, I'm walking around the mall looking for my mom and dad. I'm lost. And when you're lost, do you know what you need to do when you're lost? Look at your surroundings. Some of you maybe are hunters. If you get lost in the woods, uh, you look at your, you figure out your surroundings, right? Well, that's what I did. I, 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 I looked at my surroundings and I found a clue. I saw something in my surroundings that helped me uh, find my way. I looked up, just like Jesus did, I looked up. I didn't see a poor widow, I saw golden arches. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I knew if I just go to that place, you can get a hamburger with nothing on it except ketchup. I knew that. So I went to McDonald's. And they knew I wasn't a paying customer. And so they called the, uh, the mall cop or whoever. And my, they announced, you know, there's a lost boy in McDonald's. And my parents showed up and, you know, were really, I was really excited to see them. And I probably never stepped foot in a McDonald's again. No. <laughs> but he, here's my point. Here's my point. If you ever get lost in the Bible, look at your surroundings. Context is king. Look at your surroundings. And that's what we're going to do. I want you 
Because if, if, if you don't quite understand what's going on in these verses, we want to look at context. Now, what is context? When I say context, I'm talking about what comes before and what comes after a passage of Scripture. We want to set it in its context. So, so let's do this. Let's begin. Yeah, you see that? Actually, that's what I'm saying here. Look, let's look at it in context. What, what comes before and after? So, let's do this. Let's begin by looking at what comes right after our passage, okay? Y'all with me? Y'all tracking with me? Take it. You want to take a sip? Sip of coffee? All right, wake up. It's a long week. It's been a great week, right? What a weekend. It's been a great weekend. All right, what happens right after our passage? Well, verse five. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. Verse five. While some were speaking of the temple, notice how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Uh, over in Mark, the, the, they comment on how there's such, B, B, e, I always get this wrong, B-E-A-U, beautiful, beautiful buildings. I cannot type this morning, sorry. Beautiful buildings. So they're looking at the, the temple, the stones and the offerings and the beautiful buildings. And that's what the disciples, that's, that's, that's the sum. The disciples, Jesus' disciples are saying all this. Now notice what Jesus says. And again, the, the temple was beautiful. It, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was inlaid with gold. It was beautiful. It was stunning. Look what happens. They're marveling at it. And then Jesus says, well, as for these things that you see, the days, notice, will come when there will not be here one stone upon another that will not be what? Whoa. The crown jewel of first century Judaism, the temple, Herod's temple. Jesus is saying here, every one of these stones is going to be thrown down by God. He's going to use the Romans to do it. And when did that happen? Within a generation, 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed. That whole beautiful temple was torn down. So what's the context that comes right after our passage? In one word, judgment. Judgment. You with me? What comes right before our passage, all right? Now, if you look up, the chapter divisions get in the way, but just look up. Verse 45 of chapter 20, all right? Notice, and in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said this to his disciples. And notice, here's the, here's the command. Beware. Beware of the scribes. Now, stop right there. Ma- Luke here and Mark both give us uh, the Cliff Notes version of this speech. They summarize what Jesus says. If we want the full 
speech that Jesus gives, you look in your cross-references again, that speech is found in Matthew 23. Remember Matthew 23? It is an absolute blistering speech that Jesus gives, condemning, cursing the spiritual leaders of Israel. In fact, he gives seven woes, seven curses on the supposed to be the the spiritual leaders of Israel, the scribes who were the Bible experts, the, the experts in the law, and the Pharisees, the separate ones. Seven times. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter, but I, I'm gonna just hear this. He says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe, 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 seven times. The scribes and Pharisees, listen, beloved, weren't holy. They were hypocrites. They they weren't lovers of God. We know from Luke 16, Luke 16, 14, they weren't lovers of God. They were lovers of money. False teachers are always lovers of money. Write that in your notes. False teachers are always lovers of money. 1 Peter 5 says elders are are to serve not for dishonest gain. These blind guides, right? These brood of vipers, these whitewashed tombs, Jesus calls them. They They were not godly preachers. They were greedy predators. They didn't love the people of God. They loved the praise of men. And so... This is the speech that Jesus has just given in the temple courts that Luke records just a little section of it. Let's go back to what Luke says. Hearing all the people, he said, beware. There's the warning. Look out. Watch out. Because of these Pharisees and scribes, these hypocrites. Notice Jesus is going to, in the next few verses... Tell us specific reasons why you should avoid them. First, they like to walk around in long robes. In other words, they like being set apart and noticed by the people. They love greetings in the marketplaces. You see that? In other words, they they love to be admired by the influential people. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces. What else? They love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. In other words, they love the prestige that comes to those who are in spiritual authority in Judaism. They love it. He's going to say that they, lo- they, they also, they make a pretense, a show of long prayers. Remember, remember, remember that the, in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, he's up there praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> right? Like that tax collector over there. So they make these showy prayers, long showy prayers. And it's all fake. It's fake. 
It's for pretense. But, and, and did you notice? There's one other specific sin. There's one other specific sin. One relevant, particular, contextually important sin that these wicked spiritual leaders do. Do you see it? Verse 47. Beware of the scribes and Pharisees for they what? They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. We're gonna explain what that means in a minute, but notice what does Jesus say to them? Because of all this, they will receive what? Greater condemnation. They will receive greater condemnation. Jesus warns the people of God against these fake, hypocritical, abusive spiritual leaders who eat up and gobble up and prey upon and devour widows' houses. What does that mean? How do you eat up a house? Well, they take advantage of those who are in need and they leave them devastated. They take spiritual advantage of vulnerable widows such that they leave them without a house. They leave them, as it were, homeless. They leave them without anything. Instead of feeding the sheep the word of God, instead of doing that, they were fleecing the sheep. They preyed upon the most vulnerable and the most helpless and the most needy in the first century in Israel, widows. Now, in an agrarian society, why would widows be so at risk? Anybody want to answer? Why would, widow, why, why would widows be so at risk in an agrarian society, in a farming society? Just call it out. They didn't own land. They didn't own land. Any other, any other reasons? I think that's the answer. Any other, any other thoughts? They were alone, yeah. They were alone. And, and even if they had access to land, you, it's, it's hard to understand an elderly widow out there farming and bringing in food, right? So, so, so God, we know from, from the Old Testament scriptures, the experts of the law, the, the, the scribes, they knew better than this. Because all, I, I literally counted 20. I'm sure there are more. But there's probably 20 Old Testament scriptures, right, that teach us, right, how to care for widows. So this is Exodus 22, right? This is what it says. This is God speaking. You listen to this. This is incredible. They knew this first. They copied it out. You shall not mistreat any widow or a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, that is to, to Yahweh, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And look at this. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You mistreat 
The orphan, I'll make your children orphans. You mistreat widows, the Lord says, I'll make your wife a widower, a widow as it were. Mistreating an or- a widow in Israel was a capital offense. That's how much God sought to protect and provide for the widow. I love this verse. This is amazing. Remember that passage in Psalm 72, the greatness of our God, and yet who does he care for? Look, the Lord, your, this is Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not take, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And then look at this. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. The awesome God, the one who's mighty and great, the Lord of lords, he executes justice for the widow. And he loves the sojourner and he gives them food and clothing. Remember uh, Deuteronomy, this is a verse that you all know of because there's a book, there's a, I'm gonna see if anyone can guess it. You know, you know where this verse shows up again. God said in his law, when you reap your harvest, in your field, and for you, and he says, and forget a sheaf in the field that you have some left over, right? You shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, right? That is, an, someone who's passing through Israel, who's not a, not a, not an Israelite, the fatherless orphans, and who? Now, what book of the Bible does this show up in? Ruth. Boaz was a righteous man. He didn't just leave grain in the field as a pickup line for Ruth. He did not. He did it because she was a Moabite. And Naomi was a widow. Isn't that amazing? So, uh, I'm, I'll go here. So, Y'all see where I'm going from, right? You see, they knew better than to devour widows. They were supposed to serve widows. They were supposed to care for widows. One other thing, before we get to Jesus driving out the money changers. Remember in Isaiah 56, there's this grand vision of what the temple of the Lord is supposed to be, right? And we're told, we're told here I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want you to see that God wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all peoples, right? He wanted peoples from all nations to come and worship the God of Israel and to pray to him, right? Fix that in your minds. Jeremiah 7 is an incredible passage. You should read the whole thing this afternoon. It's it's amazing, especially in light of the sermon we're about to hear. But in Jeremiah's day, remember, What was the state of the nation of Israel in Jeremiah's day? Pretty bad, right? Pretty heinous. And and God says to the people of Israel through Jeremiah, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice for one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, there's the widow again, and shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after the other gods to to your own harm, if, 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 then... I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. You see, 
If you, if you don't do all these things that I've told you not to do, I'll let you stay here and dwell here and the temple will be here. But of course they didn't. They were doing all of these things. And then even in Jeremiah's day, listen to what Jeremiah says. Has this house, which is called by my name, become, notice, a den of robbers in your eyes? The temple in Jeremiah's day had become a house of thieves. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now let's jump back to Luke. The day before Jesus sees this poor widow giving her last two cents, when Jesus shows up at the temple, what does he do? He, this is Luke 19. He entered the temple and he began to drive out all of those who sold. And what did he say to them? As it is written, so he's going to quote from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it what? Den of robbers. The same sins in Jeremiah's day, abuse of the poor, abuse of the widows, false worship, all of that. What did God do to Solomon's temple because of that sin? Five, y'all know, y'all know. What happened to it? 586 BC. God destroyed Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. Solomon's temple was burned. And God sent his people into exile into the east, into Babylon. And these false teachers done the same thing in Jesus' day. And what's he going to do? Within the generation, the same judgment will fall upon Israel and fall upon Jerusalem. And the temple is torn from top to bottom. So, what's the context before the passage? Judgment. I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking... I came here to be encouraged. <laughs> this is the most depressing eyewitnesses of, of his majesty ever written. Well, it's going to get even worse. Right before Jesus makes this denunciation, after he makes the denunciation, and right before he sees the widow give her two cents, Jesus says one more thing. It's recorded for us in the end of Matthew. And I want you to hear the heartbreak in the Savior's, he says, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So it's in this context, brothers and sisters, Jesus takes his seat after a long, long day after three whole years of ministering in Israel. And for the most part, the entire spiritual leadership of Israel and most of the nation has rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
And so the Savior of sinners, after a long day on this day, he takes his seat in the treasury and he's looking down. How do I know he was looking down? Because Luke says he looked up. You see? (laughs) Seminary. (laughs) In order to look up, you have to be what? Looking down. Do you see why he was looking down? He looks up. What does he see? He sees the rich putting in their gifts. But right before his eyes, he sees yet another poor widow putting in her offering. She's giving everything she has to live on. Jesus looks up and sees another widow being devoured in his world. He sees yet another widow being devoured. All that she had to live on. Brothers and sisters, I don't think the point of this passage is to give us this widow as an example to follow in sacrificial giving. I think that she's offered by the Savior to us as evidence. Evidence bearing witness and testifying to the utterly corrupt religious system led by utterly corrupt religious leaders who, listen, who gladly accepted the last two cents of a poor widow. Who would do that? Is she going to go home and die? They were supposed to provide for widows, not fleece them. And Jesus teaches us in the next verses that he's going to respond to this corruption by tearing the whole system down. And he did it in 70 AD. I want to close with three applications. Three applications. I want us to consider briefly Christ's condemnation of false spiritual leaders. God's salvation is always through judgment in the Bible. God saves through judgment. And so while this may not be something we meditate on a lot, the judgment of false spiritual leaders, it reflects the glory of Jesus because it reflects his own righteousness and his own justice. This poor widow was to be protected and provided for. But false spiritual leaders, like the ones in Israel in Jesus' day, they always target and prey upon the poor. False teachers serve for dishonest gain. That's how you can, you see false teachers, they all love money. They don't love God. And they had set up this religious system that was taking money and building it up on the backs of the poor. I'm not gonna spend time on this, but remember the Reformation? One of the main reasons the Protestant Reformation happened was because of the abuse of the poor. Johann Tetzel is going from city to city, raising money for the St. Peter's Basilica, the building campaign of the Pope. He was selling indulgences. And remember what he said? When a coin in the coffer Rings a soul from purgatory springs. 
And it was in part the abuse of the poor that ignited the consciences of those who sought to preach the gospel. Just a few years ago, I read this in Charlotte, North Carolina, a federal jury found a prominent prosperity gospel preacher guilty of multiple crimes. One article noted this, quote, the prosperity gospel televangelist asked his followers for money and told them that in exchange, they would receive financial miracles from God. And research indicates that one of the largest demographics of those who send their money to these prosperity false teachers are what group? Widows. False teachers target the poor and the vulnerable. Widows were devoured in Jesus' day. They were being devoured in the 1500s and they're still being devoured today. But Jesus Christ says, he promises, they will receive greater condemnation. No one may see it on earth. Jesus sees every one of those acts of treachery and they will pay for it. Apart from repentance, they will pay for it in hell. They'll receive greater condemnation. This morning in our sermon, we're going to hear a sermon on 2 Samuel 23. And David's going to highlight the blessing of good authority, right? But in this passage, the reason I chose this passage was not for end of year giving. It was to demonstrate an abuse of authority. And I have to say, I imagine there may be people here this morning who aren't followers of Jesus. And maybe in your past, it's quite possible that someone in a position of religious authority, maybe someone who claimed to be a Christian, hurt you, harmed you. And let me just say, there are Christian leaders, even in the Baptist churches, who have hurt and used their authority to hurt rather than to help. And friend, let me just say, not everyone who says they're representing God is actually representing God. And I would beg you, I would plead with you, friend, to turn and to trust in the one who's the friend of sinners. To trust and to come to this one who defends the weak and the helpless, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again for our justification. He is the one who draws near to the needy and to the heartbroken and binds up their wounds. So friend, trust in Christ. Turn and trust in this Savior. And know that he will bring justice he will bring justice. Second application is, brothers and sisters, we need to consider Christ's call to us to care for widows. Isn't it amazing? Right after, y'all remember Luke wrote two books, right? Acts 1, or, or, Luke, Luke was volume 1, and then Acts was volume 2, right? And remember, in contrast with the temple here, remember? This false religious system. 
In Acts chapter 6, there's a problem in the early church. Remember Acts 6, verse 1? Who wasn't getting all the help they needed? Some of the widows. And the apostles see to it by appointing, they set apart some men to go and to care for those widows so that every widow who's a believer is being provided for. Isn't that beautiful? Every one of them, the Hellenistic and the Hebrews. And so I would just say for us as a church, we need, to, we need as a church, right? We need to do this because it reflects God's heart to the world. Remember, what does James say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so brothers and sisters, let me just say, we have a responsibility in particular to care for the widows and the widowers in our church. And let me just say, for those widows and widowers in this church, even in this room this morning, your church loves you. Your pastors love you. We are so thankful that you're a part of our church. If we haven't in years past cared for you the way that we should have, on behalf of the elders, I apologize. I, I pray that you'd forgive us. But you need to know, you need to know that we see these passages and we take responsibility to care, to serve, and to love you. Some of the practical ways that we can care is we can pray. Brothers and sisters, we can pray and care for those in our congregation who are widows, especially this time of year when there's an acute sense of being alone. We can pray and visit our homebound members for the same reasons. We need to pray for our deacons of member care. Pray for Jack and Davey and JJ and Frank who are seeking to, to help organize and to meet practical care needs in our church. We need to be praying because these brothers are the first line to serve those in our congregation. We need to pray for Second Mile. Pray for Lynn. She's interacting with folks all the time, many of whom are widows. We have multiple ways that we could serve. Let me conclude with this. We want to pray or we want to consider thirdly and finally Christ's sacrificial care for widows. Christ's sacrificial care for widows. You might be thinking, I don't really remember Jesus caring for widows that much. I mean, he healed, raised up the, the woman at the gates of Nain, her son. But what else? How, how did this widow in Luke 21, how did, how did she get cared for? Well, here's how. On the cross. Just a few days later after this event in the temple, Jesus himself would be betrayed by the same wicked spiritual leaders, wasn't he? Jesus himself on the cross would endure the crushing weight of injustice at the hands of these wicked leaders. Jesus is handed over to the Romans. He's handed over to the Gentiles for execution on the cross. And as he's being crucified, as he's dying on that cross, Jesus performs one final act of sacrificial love 
You remember what it was? John 19. The King of Kings is dying on the cross for the sins of his people. The soldiers are executing him and stealing his clothes. Peter has fled. Most of the other disciples have fled. But there were some followers of Jesus who stayed close to watch, including his mother, Mary. The apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they were standing near the cross. What a mother Mary was. She did not want her son to die alone. Luke chapter two, Simeon, old man Simeon told her when she was holding baby Jesus, who was eight years old, eight, eight days old. Simeon looked her in the eye and said, there's a day coming when a sword will pierce her own soul too. And she had carried that prophecy for 30 years. She did not want her son to die alone. And yet it's not the devotion of Mary that John highlights here. What a son Mary had. As he lay dying, as he hang dying, notice when Jesus saw his mother Mary and John, the beloved disciple who's standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What's going on here? Apparently, Joseph, Jesus's dad, had died. He's no longer in the picture. And as he poured out his life for sinners on the cross, in the last act of sacrificial love, he ensures that he obeys the fifth commandment. And he honors his mother by providing for her a house in a believer. Remember, his brother James was not a believer at this time. He provides for his widowed mother. He ensures that his mother will have a place to live. Oh, brothers and sisters, are you marveling at the sacrificial love of our Savior? And soon afterward, Jesus gives up his last breath and he dies and the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And by his substitutionary death, Jesus accomplished something infinitely more amazing for widows who believe. He has borne our sins in his body on the tree and he's absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. And by his sacrificial love, he protects widows who believe from the judgment and the condemnation of God. He was raised on the third day for our justification. And brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus this morning, all of his attributes are on our side. So what should we do? I'll conclude with this. We should sing. We should sing to God, sing praises to his name. We should lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Why? 
because he's the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we do cast ourselves down now before the majesty of your grace. We ask you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word that's been sown among us might take such deep root in us and dwell in us so richly that the burning heat of persecution would not cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares or fleeting pleasures of this life choke it out, but that by your blessed spirit, the spirit of grace, as seed that's sown in good soil, it might bring forth 30 or 60 or even a hundredfold, all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved son, our blessed redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.